0: Dan good morning morning Joda how you doing good man so we just uh finished a conversation with uh Jack and Christina Are you sure ones. I think and... I just got out of bed <laughs> we did have a conversation around AI I think the topic of of uh leadership and and perhaps the lack of
1: um kind of enveloped that conversation um that was kind of my takeaway a little bit yeah especially government leadership and i think you know one of the things that jack wang brings to the table uh in this conversation is that he's located in australia and so brings an international aspect to the conversation that's right and uh he was concerned about whether the australian government was going to be as responsive as it needs to be to artificial intelligence as well and we know we're concerned about that in the united states too and you and I are as well, and uh, but at the
0: same time, him and Christina kind of hinted at the skill sets that people might need to start to look into or double down on over the for the future that they help them adapt to an increasingly automated world. And I'm not going to say what those skill sets were, but I will hint at that it has a little bit to do what Dan does
1: for a living. And also Christina Inge, uh, she teaches at Harvard and other places, but she also comes from the marketing realm and it's having a big impact on marketing and advertising. So I can see where she'd be extra sensitive to the impact on AI in her industry, yeah, yeah, and we reveal the no- we talk about the notion that this AI thing is is it's a black box to
0: a lot of us, you know, and uh, a good part of our discussion also revolves around. What can we learn about AI that may, might make us be less suspicious? You know, can revealing the mechanics of this stuff make us be more familiar with it and comfortable with leveraging
1: it? You know, yeah. And interestingly, that's a resonant theme in a book I've just finished reading called *Clara in the Sun* by Kazu Ishiguru, um, in which that theme comes up—the fear that's created by the black box. Anyways, great conversation. So, I what should we mosey on over, Dan? Yeah, I'll see y'all on the uh, other side of this jump cut. Well, Christina and Jack, we want to uh, welcome you back to the Sense of Signal podcast to talk about AI. And, you know, let's just start, let's just dive right in. Were we right back in November, between November and January, uh, November of last year and January of this year, to be terrified of chat GPT-3 and the rise of artificial intelligence? Were fears justified?
2: Not really. Um, I, I, I hate to always be saying it depends and there's nuance, but sadly it depends and there's nuance. I would say yes and no. I would say From an entry-level jobs perspective, yeah, I think a lot of entry-level jobs, I think a lot of jobs that can be automated away, as always, will continue to be automated away, and ChatGPT is just part of that larger trend. Um, I have been working for 22 years in the field, and there's all kinds of jobs that have been automated away. We were just talking about this with Cynthia Barron, the department chair at Northeastern in the digital media programs that I teach in brilliant, brilliant woman. And she's been in the business for decades as well and said, there's always work that gets automated away and we have to be prepared and prepare our students for being resilient against that automation. So I think part of it is just that chat GPT is part of a much larger trend of Things being automated away. I mean, Canva um, has gotten rid of a lot of really basic graphic design jobs. Yeah, yeah. Do with ChatGPT. There's a constant evolution towards more strategic work. I would say what I'm worried about is people who don't do strategic work. They either are very junior in their career or they genuinely prefer to just design or just right. And that is a lot of people's comfort zone and what a lot of people, frankly, prefer. But if you go back in history, hand weaving was a really comforting, enjoyable profession. The Industrial Revolution destroyed them. And in fact, the term Luddite came from the people who would riot and destroy weaving machines because it was destroying the profession of weaving. It's. Mm tragic when careers go away that people derive a lot of satisfaction from however i don't think you can really halt that progress you can only learn to adapt to it so i don't think we were right to be terrified but i think we're right if we continue to be worried uh jack i'm curious what you're thinking
3: the word that comes to mind is clumsy i think everything's been very clumsy our response to it initially i mean hey Never tell me it's wrong to be terrified. I'll, I'll be terrified <laughs> in my own terms. No one tells me when, when I can't be terrified. But the, the overreaction, I guess, from the detection algorithm perspective or the companies like Turnitin investing in the detection algorithms, we can't trust that six months later. Yeah. We've been trying to use it. And I don't think we can prosecute students using that algorithm. And the only cases where students have been found using AI, at least that I know of, and prosecuted, is some other measure of AI, like the referencing wasn't quite right, or something like it's still a human detection of AI is better than the turn it in algorithm. So that response has been oversold and quite clumsy. Uh, I don't think higher education is a sector that moves with agility, let's say. No, no. more like creeps along. <laughs> so I've been part of a lot of discussions, a lot of policy discussions, which happen maybe at a quite sophisticated level, but the implementation of those policies has has been clumsy, right? Uh, and I'm so glad to
1: hear that because I've been bringing up, we need to come up with a policy at my college and we still do not have one.
3: So, Right, and it's not institution specific. I don't think anyone's cracked it yet. Uh, and so I guess uh, the fear maybe isn't the technology. The fear is our response to it will be ongoing in its clumsiness and its okay. lack of responsiveness. That's probably what I'm more afraid of rather than the tech itself.
1: Mm. Mm. What about you, Joda? And you—you you are in the tech field. How is? Were you justified in being a little scared of AI when it started first started to rise here a few months ago?
2: Hmm.
0: I don't even know if I can answer that question. I, you're not asking the question I want to be asked. Uh, okay. Is, what do you want me to ask you? You can well, interview
1: yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me ask.
0: Uh, so, Joda, what is it that uh, concerns you most about? AI at this very moment and because as of now I think yeah I think I think there's amazing possibilities for it what I'm kind of not liking is the Pollyanna sort of approach I'm hearing everybody say it really has that caveat statement it's like I don't know how do they phrase it they're usually like um, they're very dismissive of the concerns around it because they'll, they'll they'll talk about the historical changes and things like that. I just read recently that before alarm clocks, there were actually people paid to go down streets with sticks and tap on windows in the 1800s, and alarm clocks got rid of that job.
1: And that was my so like grandfather's
0: job. So don't <laughs> that was actually my first job for Trader Joe's. So yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> um, and so it kind of leans towards Jack's perspective a little bit. I think um, I, I, I feel like we're 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 steamrolling forward, mm-hmm. but with blinders on. Um, And I think this is more tantamount. This is less akin, I feel, I could be wrong. I feel this is less akin to mobile apps or the web, which also has had drastic changes to our society. And I actually think it's more akin to nuclear bomb. I think that we don't know the ramifications yet. Something went off. It's a slow burn nuclear bomb. But I think there's a singularity aspect to this one. I think there's something that ultimately can make it where we're going to have to ask an existential question about humanity more so than we've had to in the past. We've had to ask this question in the past to a certain degree, but I think this actually, this potentially, and I know this is, whoa, hyperbolic. So are you saying
1: in like 40 years or no, 60, 70 years, instead of an Oppenheimer movie, we're going to be watching a chat GPT (laughs) movie? Maybe
2: I don't know. I don't Either know. People are bad. going to be making movies at all in forty years. I think our robot overlords will be right. So I and <laughs> I I like the point Jonah Jonah makes because I think that on a micro level or an immediate level I am actually feeling kind of Pollyannish in the sense that we're going to have to adapt to these jobs going away because jobs the nature of them is that they go away. I'm not really even speaking to the deeper issue though, which is an existential question. That is something that we're going to have to face, but I think that goes beyond marketing. I don't think that's marketing's problem. I think that that's society's problem. And I don't think the impact that's going to be the worst is going to be anywhere near marketing. That's not where the problems are going to be. It is, to Joda's point, the problems are going to be much deeper and much more existential than that. And that's something that we are ill-equipped to deal with in a decentralized manner. And I think that there's there's always, whenever there's an epoch making change, and I do want to clarify that I think that Chat GPT is an epoch making change There's two ways of looking at it. There's the big, broad sweep of history, which we have no way of predicting at this point of what's gonna happen. Legislation could come in and prevent something terrible from happening, but given the way terrible things keep happening, I'm not very optimistic about that. And then there's the individual survival side of things. And, And I'm a pragmatist. I have no power to deal with the broader existential crisis. That this is going to precipitate. All that we can do, I think, on the ground level is push our policymakers as citizens. And I think, though, on the individual level, we have to think about how do we and the people we care about, in my case, you know, my students and my colleagues, survive what's coming because we don't have any control over the broad sweep of history. And in the short term, That survival depends on figuring out what part of your job cannot be automated away. In the long term, it might involve, I don't know, working in the brain cell mines of Mars, but you know, at this point, we just are, I'm trying to deal with it on a pragmatic level because that's what I can control.
1: Jack, I see on LinkedIn that you want to, one of the reasons you're a videographer on YouTube and podcasters, you want to influence students and get them prepared to be successful in the future. So what are you advising students about AI going forward and how it's going to impact their careers and how they should be adaptable to these changes that are coming?
3: Well, it's interesting you talk about the uh, the, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild yep. are striking. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess the regulation side of that has to be transparency, because if The studios are using AI to write their scripts and to do the animations and no one knows about it, then people will watch it or not watch it. There's a lot of terrible stuff that's been made by humans too, that I don't watch, right? Oh yeah. Half the stuff I write. (laughs) Maybe 90%. (laughs) Maybe 75%. Yeah. So so I guess, but if you disclose that it's been made by a machine, there's an initial curiosity factor, but generally people are find it all very distasteful. You know, so if they're not been uh, genuine with their disclosure of who made it, then that's the big problem. And what I tell my students is the same message I've been telling them for many years. is actually, unless the job you're going to is such a bedrock of society and it will never ever change, you need to go into any employment with a skills mindset and to say, what are the people I will impact through this work, but also what are the skills that I'm learning right now that I can transfer to a different setting? And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you have to be very fatalistic about your current job, but you just have to keep an open mind about ways of learning. And learning is not a finite thing that ends at the end of your degree or the start of a new job. You've learned everything you need to learn. It has to be Learning is actually very interesting inherently. And it's something you should engage in. And oh, by the way, it's good for you and you might need it to survive. Uh, and I'll, I'll finish this little rant on an anecdote. I was looking up AI in healthcare because uh, mm. the idea of Robot doctors or doctors who have never been to a physical classroom always terrifies people. That's the running joke. Like, would you want a doctor that's never seen a real patient? And how new this thing is, was what I was trying to find out. And it's actually not new at all. IBM's Watson, I think famously went on Jeopardy in 2011 and beat both of the human champions, right? And shortly after that publicized TV appearance, Watson then went on to receive another $5 billion worth of infusion. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point, they had 7,000 employees trying to crack this case of, can we use Watson to help doctors make better predictions in the clinic or even replace doctors in making complex treatment strategies? And after $5 billion and they had access to at least 50 million patient data, right, 50 million people's worth of patient data, it was, quote unquote, a piece of crap. Right. And there is no members. They still couldn't quite get it. You know? Oh, the IBM was dismissing it as a piece of crap. I'm using the I'm paraphrasing for the sake of your audience. I know crap uh, is a technical term, right? Crap, yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's an clinical. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's an yeah. yeah. Uh, and so what's interesting there is a lesson about biology that apparently 50 million people is still not representative of the diversity and all of humanity, right? So that's a biology question. But also, it needs to, first of all, aid the people that are trying to do the work in a real genuine way for it to have a chance. And I think we're seeing it in some sectors. We're not seeing AI's influence in that manner in other sectors. And the way forward is uh, led by transparency, I think. Mm -hmm.
0: Transparency of how the data is collected or transparency. Like in what areas are we talking about? We're talking about being transparent.
3: Mm. Uh, I want the people who make the AI box to have some explanation of what the box is spitting out and probably more importantly, what data they're using to train the train the AI algorithm. I think that would be that would be a good start. Like some reproducibility in the results would be good. Interesting about that. I remember reading an, art, reading an article
0: a couple of years ago about some early AI, um, actual analytical sort of number crunching AI. And it was used by I think the Mayo Clinic or something like that and supposedly the the AI was going to be able to based upon um analysis of just a bunch of things like how often you came into the office to see the doctor what kind of pains you had versus your blood work do this cross analysis and in theory it was supposedly supposed to give you some pretty amazing um diagnoses that before a doctor could even even suggest you're gonna it just, die in a week <laughs> it was literally to that level and and i haven't heard anything since then from that article but what what the point of this is they said um the problem they had with it was although the output seemed to be beyond correlation or we're not it seemed to be a relatable it was it was or it was correlated um they 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 couldn't figure out how why how how it worked and these deep learning solutions even the creators once they flip the switch they couldn't tell you how it kind of well they does say that about chat chat GPT too right they say, maybe they do yeah. I don't know but it kind of puts a wrench in their ability to give what Jack's asking for is like they're kind of like I I really don't know exactly right or am I wrong are they are they punting on the are they punting or can they figure
3: it out. Yeah, <laughs> when it comes to healthcare, people really need that explainability part to be very obvious. And uh, if a doctor does a treatment plan suggested by AI and it doesn't work, and it goes up to the medical review boards, guess who's uh, butts on the line? It's not the AI; it's the doctor who made the recommendation, right? Mm. To the state, right? They could make they could uh, you just you just
0: open up the possibilities for doctors to not have to get sued anymore. So, just, so it was the AI.
1: There you go <laughs> Well, let's hope not. No, but I mean, you are you're dealing with people's health and lives, and so that raises anxiety. And I think you know, if anything's going to lead mm-hmm. to regulation. Uh, it'll it would be that when 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 it starts to impact people's healthcare. Christine, Christina, you were talking about regulation earlier. Are you an mm-hmm. advocate for regulating AI in that way, uh, and like requiring that the data to Jack's point, the data that's being fed into this the black box and the algorithms that are in place, that that's made more transparent?
2: I'm a huge believer in regulating something this powerful. Um, What I'm not a huge optimist about is that it's going to happen, especially not here in the US. Um, It may happen elsewhere, but I think that we are in an environment where there's less regulation certainly there's less appetite for pushing through regulation with an explicit social justice or social equity purpose behind it and i don't know when the pendulum is going to swing back and i don't know what damage is going to be done if the pendulum ever swings back and how much of the genie we can put back into the bottle when that happens So I'm not an optimist about that. I think we do need regulation about it because unlike um, nuclear weapons, as Joda pointed out, if, if, if a rogue state gets a hold of nuclear weapons, we freak out. But it's also relatively difficult to do, whereas anybody can be unleashing any kind of rogue chat GPT in their basement. Now, mind you, it will not have any power to do anything unless it's implemented by a large organization, but any large organization with enough money can pull together an IBM Watson completely unregulated. So it's an existential threat of a completely different kind that's much harder to contain and much harder to control. Legislation is, in my opinion, absolutely necessary. I just don't think we're going to get there, at least not in the U.S.
1: What about you, Jack? And and is Australia is Australia's government more functional than the United States government?
3: <laughs> <clears throat> not to get political, but I find it doubtful that we will be ahead in any measurable way on the political side, at least. Uh, we did have a change of government a few years ago, so we're optimistic, but not that optimistic.
0: Yeah, optimism.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so it's interesting about the regulation. Uh, I'm actually interested in how quickly the technology will evolve to the point where all of us can deploy our own AI algorithm for our everyday tasks, as opposed to feeding it into some big company's vision of AI. I'm curious about that because there have been talks for individual institutions to launch their own AI model and to have their own chat service that's designed to help students and staff, let's say. right? And if Mm -hmm. that was feasible and scalable enough and didn't cost too much money and didn't need the professors manually vetting all the AI responses in the basement somewhere, if that was doable, then you could be very transparent, at least in your local context about the use and the training of the AI. But I don't think the technology is quite so accessible yet funnily enough. I don't think we could just go and make our own large language model without a lot of overheads that no one is being told about. And and the other headline read is uh, AI is actually doing a lot of damage to the environment because of all the processing power that it needs, first of all, and all the heat generating. Mm -hmm. And also all the manual curation of the responses in the initial training or in the later training that uh, it, it's just its carbon footprint is, is off the scales so that, that's oh, not wow. great either yeah it's kind of like blockchain it's exactly, yeah, exactly. It's blockchain. exactly.
2: so
1: i, have, I want ahead. to share my screen here so oh, you christina said had a, hold on no. me, christina had a point
2: I wanted to speak very briefly just really quickly to what Jack is saying about wouldn't it be cool if we could all deploy our own AI. We actually pretty much are all the time without realizing it because a lot of tools personalize your experience to your behavior and you can consciously, and I often will do that with apps, train it to give you more of what you want. And so I think as consumers, if we become more sophisticated in our own use, of apps that are AI driven, we are deploying it to our own purposes. You can train it to actually give you a very customized experience. But again, to your point, it requires a lot of manual input, a lot of training to get it there. But yes, we pretty much are all doing that unwittingly all day long.
0: I'm gonna do you one further. Uh, Again, I'm very forward thinking. I'm thinking anything (laughs) is possible and it seems like anything is possible has been accelerated. Yes. I could imagine you replacing yourself with your own AI. It Models your behavior. <laughs> and models how you think. And you don't even have to go and work and make the decisions. It's Making decisions based on what Jack would have made a decision on. It's making decisions so you can literally AI yourself so that you can sit home and eat potatoes. Well,
1: I think that is I what Christina was talking about earlier. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We are doing that. I have done that. But I'm still <laughs> not sitting home doing <laughs> wait, potato chips. No, I, I are really you AI, Christina? That. Yeah, no, I literally have trained, I have trained a language model to write emails for myself, not the way autocomplete does it, and to summarize things I've already written into fresh content and fresh blog posts by teaching it to write the way I write. And it takes me about a third of the time as it used to, to crank out a quick blog post. So I have pretty much created an AI Christina. It's a really primitive version of myself, but I did. And it took me about to
0: And I'm already
1: primitive. So that's I'm I'm
0: screwed. So it's like,
2: <laughs> You're totally screwed <laughs> <with me. laughs>
1: Well, this is the thing, right? This is part of the adaptation part. You've got to figure out how to use the tool to make yourself more productive. All right. You so know, so that's that great. Said, I'm going to yeah. share my screen here. So, right. tell me if you're seeing this. <laughs> i that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So what's okay. something Christina said, you made, you made a comment about chat GPT specifically, mm-hmm. because AI is a much broader subject, right? I mean, actually, I mean, when we're talking about, we're talking about automation, I think that's the umbrella, automating mind, automating physics, automating all sorts of things, automation. And the question is what, when you like, we've all agreed in this room, automation has been slowly but surely removing jobs from the field while simultaneously adding jobs and one can argue adding more jobs than we've ever had in the past because more because populations being serviced with jobs but this is a thing by accenture that says um the hit to specific industries that they've identified for llms large language models specifically a chat gpt like tool nothing else other than just that And here it says, banking will, um, high potential, 54% of their tasks will be removed, just like gone. And then 12% will be augmented. Insurance, software platform programming, 40%, uh, 43% energy. So, and they're saying just gone. So that's a lot of work. Does that mean these people just will have their same jobs, but will they'll just be a lot pushier?
1: That's what I hope.
2: I hope so, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I I think, honestly, the jobs are going to change. I think we're in a transitional space right now where you can do things like create your automated Christina. But at (laughs) what point will people decide they don't need to hire me at all if I've created a large language model version of my dumbest thoughts? Right. Not not my books, not my most original content. Not the ideas that go behind my content, but to just take an idea I've already had and write it up in some fresh, clean way. I've already automated that away to such an extent that soon people won't see the point of me for that kind of low-level work.
1: But can you patent your your auto, the Christine Autobot, Christina Autobot, and like Christina Bot,
2: Christina Bot? I like that the Christina Bot. (laughs) The JodaBot.
1: Jodabot. <laughs> don't That's scary. Don't, <laughs> don't
0: go there. You don't no, <laughs> you know, I used
2: uh, I, I used an existing tool and I just trained it to sound like me. That's what I mean. It's like these tools are out there. You can just train it painstakingly, and they're quick studies. And actually, that yeah. gives me another concern. I would say a good maybe 50% or more of people don't realize that whenever you interact with one of these large language models, you are giving it data that it can then use to learn how you think. Now, you can do that purposefully to save yourself time, but most of us are doing it accidentally. And creating our own replacement without knowing that that is what we're doing. And that's where I worry that there's also a need for education. And um, I'd love to hear what Jack thinks about that as well. Mm-hmm. That, that People just don't know what these things are doing.
3: Yeah, so uh, two thoughts on that. First of all. Uh, I tell my students that they won't be replaced by AI. They'll be replaced by people who know how to use AI better than they do. (laughs) And that could be either an employee on their level or it could be an organizational leader who knows how to use AI better than they do. Mm -hmm. So they can't ignore it. They have to embrace it in some way. And secondly, around the use of AI and detecting it in in our area, I mean, I'm a journal editor. I don't have the capacity to detect how much of the submitted research article is AI or not, is AI generated, AI proofread, AI edited, or in your case, Christina Bott, maybe AI (laughs) helped you write the (laughs) opening preamble. I'm not sure. Uh, So, so, and I don't have the bandwidth to do that. I mean, editors aren't being paid by these journals to do this kind of work, right? So we are very vulnerable to this disruption and it's maybe of our own doing and our own making. Uh, But in terms of the jobs and how I see it, the way I incorporate AI into my workflow is to do the stuff I don't want to do. You know, like I'm not really yeah. uh, a huge fan of, for example, uh, scripting every last bit of every video I make. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of having to do animations or I'm not a huge fan of editing videos into the late hours every night. So I'm trying to use it in that low hanging fruit aspect, right? But I mean, that's a little dismissive to people who are full-time jobs at those areas. If you're a full-time sure. video editor, then... What does that look like? Uh, Maybe in the short term, you're very happy about it, but long-term, unless you adapt again, you won't be replaced necessarily by AI. You'll be replaced by a person who knows how to use AI that much more effectively and that much more efficiently than you. Uh, And my last point about us submitting data to train the AI unknowingly, if students are submitting assignment data into it, that's an enormous corpus of text that AI maybe didn't have access to before or in terms of primary research data, that's the really tricky one, right? If you're asking AI to write your research papers, man, what happens to that data? You know, let's say you're working with patient samples and you are, well, I'm going to just submit this raw data in because I wanted to format the graph for me. I'm too lazy to make a graph. Who owns that data now, right? I yeah. think for a while it was very murky. Now maybe there's more privacy policies in place, but that can all flip. Right, so so I think training education is absolutely crucial, and it's often the smartest people who need the most training. Well, in Europe,
0: I think the people on their data, right, with the GRPD or whatever, which is which is going to be interesting for AI to, for it to grow in in uh, Europe. But I have a joke before we move on in the other subject that kind of relates to what your very first point was. It's we don't do jokes, jokes on this podcast. No, Jonah. it's no talk about this. <laughs> so two gentlemen are sitting are in the forest and they're they're camping, and a bear. Comes out of the woods and obviously it's gonna charge them. So they freak out and they they whoa and the other guy gets up and starts running. One guy and the other guy stops and just sits down and ties his shoes. And the other guy looks at him and goes, What are you doing? Why are you trying your shoes? The bear's gonna get you. He goes, he goes, he, and the guy says to the guy, he goes, I don't like wait, what is say? he says, hold on, the bear's gonna kill you? He goes, Well, I don't have to outrun you, or I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. Right. Okay, I fucked up that joke. But the point is, it does remind me of that first point where you said essentially what we're saying is you're not in a race against AI, you're in a race against those who leverage AI, which is interesting.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, corporations might uh, leverage AI against you, and I guess that brings us to the Hollywood um, conundrum, right? Well, it's not even the conundrum, it's the Hollywood situation where they're on strike because of very specific things around AI, like taking people's pictures and and being able to reuse them as background actors, also Mm -hmm. generating scripts. I've also heard anecdotally like special effects artists and videography, according to, you know, to Jack's point. So uh, it's interesting that Hollywood is the first industry to rise up, you know, and uh, protest AI uh, with their unions. Do you think we're going to see more of that? Do you think we're going to see more union action around AI?
3: Uh, I, I definitely think so, because it's an untenable position for them. It's a completely untenable. It's, their, it's a side hustle for us to go out on the weekend and take a photo and use Photoshop to use gerund to fill and put a new sky in or put a cow in the background or change the direction of the water in your landscape photo. But for a serious artist that takes sort of movie shots, right? Movie sets, photography that that's their livelihood like unless the unions come in where are they supposed to turn unless they then use ai as part of their art and do a digital hybrid and then sell that as another co-creation that's probably the only tenable path forward in that creative space but we're talking big budgets with hundreds of people on a set or we do a very specific job unless the unions get in, I'm not really sure what the future of it is. You know? And the, the creativity part of it is the most... We talked about this in January. It's the most unpredictable outcome that's emerged from all of this. That, that would be the first sector hit. And we thought it would be the, the blue collar jobs, the robots in the Amazon warehouses. But no, it's artists who, who create these uh, imaginarians for a living. It's really fascinating. Jack, I don't know if you've heard, but it's
0: if you have if you're an artist or a movie person that has problems, you go to you go to Ron Perlman because he goes and he'll blow up somebody's house for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to mess with Ron Perlman after watching that uh, TikTok Perlman. video. <laughs> have you guys seen that Ron Perlman TikTok video? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. He's he gets best. He, <laughs> he tells them off, I'm gonna cut, we know where you live. <laughs> we know where
0: you live. <laughs>
1: Well, I, bring, I think it does bring up you know the the um, you know the tensions between well, not to get too Marxist, but the the owners of the means of production and the proletariat, right? Like the people who are running the corporations and how you know even Bob Iger was kind of very dismissive. He has got a lot of criticism for how he dismissed their concerns. Concerns. That was a because
0: horrible interview. That was the worst interview. It's ridiculous. So, yeah.
1: Uh, it's kind of like an eat let them eat cake interview. And yeah. but these are this is people's livelihoods and it's their health care and it's uh gonna have a massive um impact on their livelihood if they don't address this.
2: I think yeah. the best way to address it is is frankly, uh again, on a policy level, but it may be the private, it may be individual industries are going to have to try to engineer a soft landing for the people whose jobs are gonna be automated away. I don't Agreed. think. You can simply prevent a technology from being used. I think what you can do is take care of the people who, through no fault of their own, have done everything right and are going to lose their jobs because of the evolution of technology. I think that's the ethical thing to do and the more practical thing to do rather than trying to stop AI. um, Yeah, it's not going to stop.
1: Yeah, it's not going to stop.
0: No. No. It would be folly to do so, and it reminds me we've done we've tried to do this in times in the past, and even in those executions, we're never really that good at it, right? It's it's just it. There's so many, there's so much good to talk about. I there really is. AI's got. I mean, uh, Jack is just like, come on, guys. There's some good shit in there, and there. Yeah, let's talk about mix. the
1: good stuff there's too. There's good That's stuff good friend, in yeah. there.
0: There is. And yeah, we'll get there. I was just going to say, but we've been trying, but we do not do this well. Uh, we have Dan and I have a mutual friend whose father used to be a fisherman on the west coast of California. And a lot of the fishing has kind of been moderated and pulled back. And he kind of was forced to stop fishing, doing his job. And the government tried to say, hey, we're talking to guys like 55. Yeah, you can't fish. So we're going to teach you, give you classes so you can become a programmer. It's not <laughs> going to happen. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's just not fair. You know, I mean, sure. You know, one out of 20 55 year old might go, oh, shit, sure, I've got a knack for this. I'm going to go do this. But most, I mean, so, so we have to figure it. We don't. We have to figure that out as well too because yeah. even the soft landings are pretty hard at least the yeah. way we handle it anyways good
2: stuff let's do good stuff ai plus right. good things coming out of ai uh, i would say one of the best things that's come out of using large language models and ai is in my space my space. one of my areas that i work in and research and have written two books on so look for me on amazon and buy my book uh, <laughs> um, is marketing analytics and one of the big challenges of marketing analytics has honestly been that most organizations have much more data than they can literally process on a very basic level like right. they are overwhelmed with the grunt work part of dealing with their data And in a lot of organizations, nonprofits, um, small businesses, it's not that there is somebody who's going to lose their job. It's that the work is simply not being done. Yep. And in those spaces, it is a great amplifier because they would have never come up with the money to be able to hire an extra person. And frankly, in some cases with data analytics, there's just a skills gap. There's not enough people who know how to do it for the amount of jobs that are already out there. And in those spaces, I think that's going to be a net positive. And I'm already seeing that it's a net positive. I have a wonderful client who is a solo entrepreneur. She's helping. um. Women bounce back and and men and people of all genders bounce back financially from uh, the dissolution of a marriage or from going back to work after many years at home with kids. She uses an AI tool that she pays for to write the blog posts that she needs to do for SEO, she can't afford to pay me any more than she already is. And she's a solo entrepreneur. She would simply be falling by the wayside and not able to do her own marketing on the level that she needs to do if it weren't for this. So I would say it's an extra pair of hands if you deploy it properly in areas where there is a shortage or there's a budget shortfall.
3: Nice. Yeah, I think uh, the other part that's really exciting to me is Language, learning yes. languages. I know it's been a bit into Duolingo, but I can envisage a future where, I mean, when we, when you guys travel, I don't know if you use Google Translate a lot and the image and the voice and the dictionaries. But if that's all automated away and it's just unawareable, that's very exciting. I mean, it could be you don't yeah. really need to learn a new language. Maybe it's just all processing in real time. And for students who are watching a lot of videos for their lecturers, maybe the live captioning will finally be better. I don't yes. think it's that great, but maybe it'll be finally a little bit better. And imagine going to a research conference and you're watching someone talk and it's being captioned live. It's been superimposed with, let's say, an AI headset, the Apple Vision Pro, if it doesn't weigh a ton or doesn't cost the arm and the leg. And every link, every book that they mentioned, maybe Christina's book, she's plugging it. We're seeing it superimposed straight away and we can read a summary of it live I think we're not that far away from it. Maybe like a couple of years. So it's actually really exciting. And I think the language barrier will be the really interesting thing. On YouTube, That's every big every big creator is not just making their own videos. But I mean, Mr. Beast is the biggest YouTuber. So he's done this and everyone else has copycatted him to some extent. Where Mr. Who? He, Mr. Beast. <laughs> <laughs> mr beast yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but, so,
3: but, but he uh he he's he's speaks english uh, he's american and then he re-uploads his videos with voice actors in every language right in spanish yeah. and japanese oh. and chinese and he has just as much traction in those different areas of the world as he does in, in the usa and that's how he's building his audience And that is an enormously expensive endeavor to hire voice actors to redub all of your videos. But if AI would process that for you, it could very much empower the individual creator who doesn't have that budget. So I think it's scary collectively and for organizations to think about it. But as an individual with a lot of gumption, a lot of entrepreneurship, it's a really great time to have all these tools accessible.
1: What yeah, about. and how people can connect all those tools together, like the the, the text to speech with the audio and, and create and even uh, video AI to create, you know, animations that, you know, that are all generated through AI, all the different components. It's fascinating. The three of you are in education,
0: and that's something you guys haven't even spoken about some of the concerns. Where does AI fit into education? And I think, Jack, and we've kind of touched on this last time, um, but now we've got three people. Um, where, where does AI, how, how does it affect education positively?
3: Um, I'll, I'll touch on a point that Christina mentioned earlier, uh, data analysis. We don't know how to teach data analysis at scale at universities. We, we just don't. Uh certainly within biology, the biological data we alluded to earlier, human data is really messy. So trying to sift through biological data is really difficult. So all we can kind of hope for is to give sample fake data sets to students to try and give them an idea. This is the operational mechanics of doing this kind of statistical test. But really, it's not that authentic. Really, it's not that genuine. And also, they could be lost in the mechanics of it and not in the interpretation of it. Not the high order operationalization of analysis. So I don't think it's quite freely available everywhere. But if the students could click a button and analyze a set of data and change a parameter really intuitively,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: we don't have to spend our energy saying, "You got to enter this command line prompt, and you got to filter by this first, and you got to make sure you adapt it by this parameter <laughs> before, and anything makes sense." We're going to say, look, click this button, and then it'll give you four options. You can change the analytical method. Each of them gives you a different result, but don't trust any of them. Go through and vet each one manually or using another tool. That actually makes the language of data analysis that much more accessible to students and to educators. I don't want to be bogged down in command line prompts when I'm explaining data analysis to students.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I can speak
1: to. Now, right now, I'm I'm the dean of a library, which is amazing. Never thought that would happen. <laughs> um, but I think from a research perspective, information literacy is going to become more and more important uh, to what uh, I think both Jack and Christina have already kind of alluded to. There's what's feeding the box, right? Where's that data coming from, and making that transparent, or and making helping students understand that there is a source for this data that's, or this uh, language that's being presented to them on their screen. And how did it get there? Um, You know, we've been talking to folks about blockchain and how blockchain is supposed to make uh, the, um, uh, the, oh, what is it called? The supply chain, uh, make the supply chain much more transparent. I think the same thing needs to happen with information too of the information supply chain that's feeding into AI and how it is being managed you know the I think it was the New York Times who had a story a few years a few months ago about how some of the the AI data was being coded at for like two dollars an hour by some workers in Africa. And maybe it was on Nigeria, and they were exposed to a lot of really horrible stuff because mm-hmm. they were trying to tune the, the algorithm so it wouldn't put that bad stuff out there when you, when you um, put in a question, right? But they mm-hmm. got exposed to a lot of negative stuff, especially once images started to be incorporated into it. You know, just imagine, you know, what those bots are finding in the dark web, right? And That's... we're exposing to those folks. So I think it's important for students to know how to that that information supply chain, and then how to make sense of the data that's or the information that the bot is presented presenting to them. How can they spot a hallucination? Right, that they need to you know for those who aren't who are, who are not aware of the term hallucination or listening, a hallucination is when an AI bot really doesn't know the answer, but statistically they're going to. F- make something up because it's really a statistical machine that's kind of trying to predict what how to respond to a a particular prompt prompt. and sometimes if it can't if it's not tuned right it'll come up with some bizarre answers that aren't true and that (laughs) is technically called a hallucination in the ai world and you need to be able to spot those or and be able to think through the information that you're being provided sounds like a human condition yeah it is (laughs) It is. Well, They reflect, uh, the, the AI bots are reflective of us, right? That's, they're being fed by us. Yeah. That's
2: exactly it. They are being fed by us and they're being, they're being pushed uh, in different directions by whoever is engineering them and whoever whoever's developing them and what data sets they're using to train it. I, one of the good things that I'm seeing not necessarily just in education, but I think that if we can look at this from an optimistic standpoint, which again is mm-hmm. very tough in the long run, one of the things that I think it may cause us to reflect on more seriously as a species is what does it mean to actually be human? Because <laughs> intelligence has not been a solely human trait since forever and different forms of intelligence have always existed octopi for instance apparently have multiple brains in multiple parts of their bodies and are actually incredibly intelligent Um, dolphins are very intelligent gorillas apparently have the intelligence of a five or six year old child Hmm. So we've always had to deal with non-human intelligences. We've just simply been able to overpower them or ignore them or disregard them. Now we've created another non-human, not yet intelligence, but will eventually become an intelligence. So then what, what makes us us? And there's been some early research saying that part of what makes humans intelligent in our human way and why Watson was a failure in medicine is what's called embodied intelligence that mm-hmm. interacting with the world. Um, right now, we had a thunderstorm pass through my window, and now it's sort of lightly clearing. And as a human being, you know, you know what it's like to have a humid day. You know what it's like to have a thunderstorm. You know what it's like to eat chocolate filled peanut pretzels. And a machine will never know any of those things. And an octopus will never know any of those things. But there's things an octopus could tell us if it could speak to us that we will never know. And so that embodied intelligence, if we can carve out a space in that, you know, I'm all about the wacky historical analogies.
1: Oh, yeah, we love them.
2: Okay, so. One of the things I don't think I talked about on the last podcast, but what I gave as a talk to my students who were all very worried about this this year, is that ultimately one of the greatest powers on Earth, you know, we've all seen the movie 300 Sparta, ended up getting defeated. And who defeated Sparta? It was not, pe- it was not a bigger army. It was not the Persians. It was not people with better weapons. It was not people with more money. It was people who were more human. They were ultimately taken down by a little city state called Thebes, which was the head city of a play of Boeotia, which is known as cow land. They were cattle ranchers. Um, they're, entire army, which was the only other standing professionally trained army other than the Spartans, consisted of 150 married couples who were thought to be better fighters because of their loyalty to each other. And they defeated the Spartans by getting the Spartans to lay down the shields that they would hold locked like this, because Spartans only knew how to fight behind that wall of shields. Whereas people who grew up on cattle ranches knew how to fight hand-to-hand combat. They had been in a lot of schoolyard fights as kids. Spartans hadn't because they had been raised in a totalitarian regime that beat the individualism out of them. And so the Thebans figured out that we may be dirt poor. We may be living in a part of the world people call cow land. (laughs) But we could beat these Spartans in a hand-to-hand fight any minute of the day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, farm strength.
2: We had form strength. They also showed, they pulled up on the Spartans with their, literally their spouses and grandma was cooking out the back. So they had their family, they had their neighborhood, they had their community. They had what makes you human. And the Spartans had had the humanity taken out of them by their system. And they, for a long time, their lack of humanity was their strength. The fact that they were a machine was what made everyone else terrified of them. And it's what was their greatest weakness. And when people who realize, say, wait a minute, our greatest strength is the fact that we are humans and grandma's out back cooking. And, you know, I I got my husband build the plumber here who could be anybody in a schoolyard fight. Let's take Sparta on. They wiped them out in 57 minutes. They decimated the Spartan army. So I think at the end of the day, what makes us as people valuable and powerful and strong is something we're going to have to reflect on very deeply because it's ultimately all we're going to have left we cannot beat machines by being better machines that's not how Thebes beat sparta they beat it by beat them by being better men and women well okay men were the only army but um all the support roles were women so anyway they beat them by being better people the only way we're going to manage in the age of chat GPT is by understanding what we bring to the table as people and being very good on at that and doubling down on that and not trying to beat the machines.
1: Jack, and, John, do you agree that John, with that? And the John Henry story. Yeah, yeah. Jack, do you
3: agree with that? And as a biologist, what makes what makes us human? Well, it's interesting that the technology is not capturing the full human condition, but it's captured enough of it to attempt to replace us at our work, which yeah. is kind, of, kind of reflects maybe how little of us we actually bring to our jobs and how little of the human connection <laughs> is commodified and measured in, in terms of our value to our employers. And I think this echoes Christina's point about what makes us human, it's the connection to others, it's that relational empathy that you can't build in any other way. And in academia, again, to use our sector as the example, How much of our mentoring of others is captured in our value? Are we an individual entity? Are we the sole hero or rogue doing things on our own? Or do we really build a network and train people and mentor staff? And how do we measure other people's success through our own success if we've in some way influenced them? I think that's the metric that's still missing in our sector and probably in most sectors. How have you led other people to become leaders in their own right? And that connection at the human level is something that AI can't replace to my mind in the short term. And that's what I've been trying to double down on. That's what I think the sector needs to focus on. How are we supporting others in their success? Dan and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, two in a separate show.
0: And um, I use the analogy, you know, and I really like it resonates with me with what you said, Christine, that. You don't judge yourself, humanity. I, you, first off, as a person, you should probably never judge yourself against the rest of the people, unless you're in a competition. You're, you're actually in a competition. You should you should be your own your own yardstick by which probably that's that's a good recipe probably for happiness. And then from a humanity perspective, I'm sure it's the same thing, which is what I just kind of got from you to some degree. And um, Dan and I had a conversation where like I play piano. I'm never going to be probably playing professionally. I don't play that well. I haven't played that long, but I love playing piano. And I could officially, I, I probably could quit everything. Just take my wife and go up the mountains and play piano for the rest of my life. And no one else would hear the music. I do it because it's edifying for me. Am I adding to the corpus of music out there? I'm not. Am I making more music so that it goes for the centuries that I've, I've moved music to a new level? I'm not. I haven't done that. There was probably an algorithm that could do it. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it satisfies something that's human inside of me. And, you know, if I was to be upset that I can't hammer a nail into the wall as well as a hammer, and I'm going to let a hammer make me be existentially challenged, I've got things I got to figure out because I shouldn't be, you know. And that's I think we're going to have to increasingly check ourselves a little bit with this technology because you're right. Why are we comparing ourselves to this stuff?
1: So what should we be looking for in the future? Like now we were oh, what, eight, nine months into the drop of chat GPT-3. There's now four, uh, five's coming out pretty soon, I'm sure. And be, they have the Bing bot, you have Google's, I, her Facebook or Meta's coming out with their um, their AI soon. What should we be looking for in the next six months? What do you see happening?
2: think the next six months we're going to have people <sighs> clumsily, to use Jack's word, trying to push back on it in ways that miss the entire point. Schools, for instance, just forbidding students to use chat GPT when there's just no way. Um, I think in the short term, it's just going to be a, a poorly constructed societal response. But I think Individually, to go back to something Jack said, if you're very entrepreneurial, I think now is the time to figure out how you can bring value working with chat GPT or with some other form of AI. I would say, so again, going back to the meta level of the societal response that we have limited power over, it's going to be bad. It's going to be ineffective, in my opinion. But on the individual level, we all need to figure out, well, what can I do as a person to survive in this situation, keep my job, et cetera? And that's where I think the opportunities are going to be. We all have to be creative. We all have to be scrappy. We all have to think about, well, what can I do with ChatGP? Maybe everyone will have a them bot.
1: <laughs> I really don't <laughs> want to see a Jota bot.
2: That's
0: worse than a Terminator. Fucking <laughs> the Sand Hill Row right now. What's going down.
3: Jack, what do you see coming down the pike? I said this last time too. There's no quicker way to look foolish on the internet than to make a prediction about the internet oh, about yeah. technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no quicker way to do that. So we're asking. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll make <laughs> a first. Uh, I'll make a conservative prediction first. I predict that both of you will become uh, more prolific in your podcasting output as you incorporate <laughs> AI editing into your podcast workflow. We'll see ten episodes a week instead of uh, one a week. Agreed. We'll have you. You have frequently published. The other part of it is you need I to teach think- us how to do that, Jack, because <laughs> I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the right plugin. I'll, I'll, I'll DM you when I find it. Yeah,
0: and I, actually, I, real I, pause I, there. Dan actually has explicitly told me he enjoys editing. So until he stops enjoying editing, we'll probably not
1: be leveraging. I it. do something. Although today I was editing and there was a sound issue. I was like, God, I hate editing. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> but sometimes, but I do you. like it. There's something I don't know. It's kind of like writing. Editing's like writing. In a a lot of ways, because you do a lot of editing when you're writing, but you're making cuts. I won't go into it, but I I do find enjoyment in editing.
3: I find enjoyment the first ten percent of editing, and then the last ninety (laughs) percent, I've kind of I've got got it. I've got enough of it. Uh, My second prediction will be some big institution will do a big reveal and say the thing that you've been using and you've been loving all along has been fueled by AI. And they will try and spin it as a positive and say, look, we're so far ahead on this tech. They won't tell mm-hmm. us that it's ai field, and they'll do a twist reveal and do so to try and boost their stock. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. Apple, I think, released news that they've got some GPT version internal to them. There'll be some feature that we didn't realize was AI and companies mm-hmm. going to leverage that to its benefit. That'll be my prediction. What could it be? Mm-hmm.
1: What could be something that we're using daily that could secretly be... AI. Or government. Probably
2: something. (laughs) (laughs) The
0: entire Congress is AI. The whole media apparatus. (laughs) Just CNN. CNN is is AI. AI. (laughs) We know it's CIA, so it's right. It's got to be be, uh, AI.
1: (laughs) I mean, I want my concern in in the future, and I am not negative on AI. I agree with all of All the comments around, hey, we need to adapt to it, you know, from an educational point of view, faculty shouldn't be like banning it. We shouldn't be like, no, using AI. It should be, how do we use AI ethically and practically uh, to to get the most out of how it's going to improve our productivity and to prepare people for the workforce. So I'm all there. I do worry about a meaning crisis, you know, and how it contributes to, you know, the questions of who we are as human beings. Is it is when it starts taking some of that creative work away? are we going to lose something there? I say that, and then at the same time, I went to the beach the other day and there was an art club there, and everyone was sitting along the uh, the uh, the promenade with their watercolors out doing you know the group paintings of this um, of the shoreline and they're not to joda's point they're not doing it because they're going to become famous watercolorists they're doing it just for to fulfill that spiritual need in them um yeah so i bet but i do think we 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 need to be conscious of how it might impact how we make meaning out of our lives and because we do live in a world right now where that is a challenge for some folks and um can lead to bad results if they don't feel like there's a purpose to things
0: dan i i'm going to add to that too because you made me rethink something i said earlier and that is, yes, exactly. And if I'm gonna put a if I'm gonna be asked about a prediction, it's not next year's prediction, it's gonna be a 1520 year prediction. But really, the challenge, I think the biggest I don't think AI is as much of an extent. Let me phrase, I don't think AI actually might not be the existential threat that it that I was kind of suggesting earlier, although it could be really what it means is we've we've in this society, we've put so much bankroll on us being productive in a capitalistic system and i think really that's the challenge we have where are where does it be where where if ai can remove me out of that pull me out of that mechanism um where's my value in the machinery that keeps the machine going because mm-hmm. dropping out we've been doing it since the 60s to an end drop out <laughs> people say i don't want to be part of it i'm gone we have a mechanism to say disassociate ourselves from that productive productivity life cycle but if you're stuck in it and so many of us define ourselves by it and we swim in it and you can barely even recognize it, But it's just the water around us that's where i think the challenge is going to be and, and and i think where it's going to be less about you're going to find people i think my prediction is you're going to find people more people dropping out in some strange ways yes. and yeah. as people just saying because the system is going to push them out because there's going to be no place for humans in a, I, I don't have a better word, a market system, a capitalistic system, because it's about optimization. It's all about optimization and humans are not optimal. Sure.
2: I said it.
1: Well, that was a dour
3: ending, Joda. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: was a real bummer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a robot. We are inoptimal. You are an optimist. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was optimal Well that's to reveal
1: actually AI it's not Christina <laughs> <laughs>
0: My name is Max Hedrum all right that's uh, uh this is funny I AI. <laughs> I actually would thought I was being optimistic because from my vantage point it's beautiful to think to yourselves that it's actually not going to be existential her humanism will will cut through this crap but inevitably you're going to ask we're going to be asking ourselves people are going to ask you where do you fit into the mechanics of of a market met capitalistic system that's where i so i feel i feel like it's optimistic because there's actually happiness if you say if you can pull that piece apart a little bit but maybe
2: not i agree that we have a really big struggle with with meaning i think that a lot of people are Trying to drop out or thinking dropping out is a good idea. Um, you, you see a lot of people pushing back on the very idea of labor, the very idea of working. And I think that it's just, it's just a savage backlash. Now, um, but savage backlashes can cause a lot of harm. And, we've we have been living for the grind for so long but the answer is not to say all right then I'm just not going to contribute to the world at all and I'm just going to you know live for you know sitting on my couch because that can also cause despair and I'm reminded because I'm extremely old um but I wasn't there personally um but I'm reminded of you know, there was a real transition in society from like the end of the 1700s to like the Victorian era. We tend to think of history always you know, moving in one direction and that people always were more conservative and would be less conservative. No, um, society was in some ways a lot freer, but also a lot more harsh and violent in the, um, 1700s than it became in the 1800s some of it was better you know the streets became safer but some of it was much worse people um it was a much more repressed society so i think that we are in the midst of a backlash that is going to hurt people if they embrace the backlash a little too much
3: yeah I'll try and end on a positive note, if if I can <laughs> do that. I'm not a overly positive person. Oh, I of course, AI that. positivity. <laughs> uh, AI removes a lot of the boundaries to creativity in that there's limitless. You can generate anything. But all the books on creativity say that it works much better. And you create much more insightful work if there are limitations and boundaries on what you can it's do. Friction, yeah. Yes. So with watercolors, maybe you don't have every paint, but you've got three paints, and you have to make do the picture will be consistently more interesting. And if you are a photographer like myself, having every single lens in a bag, you might have a lot of money, but you will be bound by the choices you have available to you. And if you just had one single lens, one single camera, the work you produce is just that much more insightful. So the human condition can still trump that creative part of it because we are limited by what we can and can't do in a way that AI is not. And I'm not releasing any AI creative work that is are going to transcend that that boundary. So, so, yeah, so win for humanity.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, there used to be a Polish uh, director named Gr- Grotowski. He's kind of an avant-garde guy, and he would say the same thing: that creativity is about the limitations, you know. And he set up theater processes where it was very intentional. We're going to create these limitations, and you have to create within these boundaries. Um, so, yeah, point taken, Jack.
0: Yeah. yeah, Hey, I think we're going to start probably wrapping this up. It's been all over. But before we start pulling that, I want to redeem myself real quick. If it's possible (laughs) on that joke that I just put sure it's impossible. (laughs) Okay. So here we go. I'm going to tell that joke just one more time. And then Dan can edit it in or not. You can leave the old one, but here's how the joke was supposed to go. There are two people in a wood in the woods and they run to a bear. The first person gets down on his knees to pray. The second person starts lacing his boots. The first person asks the second person, my dear friend, what are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. To which the second person responds, I don't have to. I only have to outrun you. So that's how the joke was supposed to go.
2: Yeah, so uh, You're
1: going to happy hour after this, Joda? Third I time's a charm. This is... <laughs> jeez tough crowd
3: (laughs) through through the magic of editing it will seem seamless
0: (laughs) actually no i'm
3: not editing that in i'm gonna leave it (laughs) at the end
1: it's better yeah it's better all right so uh jack and christina uh, if people want to reach out to you how do they find you and do you have any books or (laughs) things to plug or
3: podcasts to plug christina go for it go jack first oh okay Uh, i run i run a youtube channel it's called biolab collective and my podcast is crossover connections with jack wang
2: um, I run a digital marketing agency in Boston called Thoughtlight. T-H-O-U-G-H-T, thought as in thinking light, L-I-G-H-T as in light bulb. If you go to thoughtlight.net or just look me up on LinkedIn, Christina Inge on LinkedIn, happy to connect. I have two books out, Marketing Metrics from Kogan Page and Marketing Analytics uh, on a little bit more introductory level from um, World Publishing, and you can find both of them on Amazon.
1: Well, Industrial. thank you both. This was thank another so stimulating much. conversation. And we'll definitely have to do it again. And the next time Joda and I will be bots. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Will you <laughs> both be
2: Joda bots, however?
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna be a Joda bot. <laughs> That's my a prediction, little, Dan. Yeah, is wife. that the prediction? <laughs> next week. All right, we'll edit all the funky stuff out. So uh we just wanted to woke Christina and Jack. <laughs>
2: Yeah!